0: It's tough, isn't it? But today, let's choose joy. Let's rejoice in our times of trial and testing and what am I missing? I guess, oh, Not to worry. yep, so take half of these and give them to the other side too. Because today, today I'm giving you something more, I'm giving you something to add to what um, I've given you, and we're giving you an outline You know, I gave you a blank outline on Monday, and now I'm giving you two samples of an outline that you can use uh, for yourself. So we're gonna look at that. Um, This is so, because you know what I decided? I decided it doesn't matter if we finish James. (laughs) Because we will talk about what we need to talk about. We'll cover what we need to cover. Um, God is in control and not me. This is his book, not my book. He wrote it, not me. I'm just here to share what he has shown to me, so we wanna hit the high points, we wanna hit the points that he is um, bringing to light, and that's what we're gonna do, right? We're just gonna try to be obedient to the word. So I would like you to look at uh, that in just a second, but first I wanna review, I wanna review just a little bit so I can get back on track. So James, the brother of Jesus, writes to the 12 tribes who are dispersed amongst the nations. The audience is primarily Jewish. There might be a spattering of Gentiles in the congregation or the audience that he's written to, but they had been enduring trials and tribulations. They're going through trials and tribulations, and they will be going through trials and tribulations under persecution. And now they're steeped in the Greco-Roman culture of the time. Some of them were Jewish-Greeks before they were Jewish-Greek believers. (laughs) So they have this whole mix of their culture. So this is part of what James is dealing with with them. But we know that because of the day of Pentecost, the word went out and it went to all those nations where the Jews had been dispersed from the Old Testament as well as those who were dispersed out of Jerusalem. This group of believers are struggling because they lost their wealth, they lost their power, they lost their positions when they fled Jerusalem. They, let, they lost everything that was worldly, and they were just left with themselves. And so now they're living among these Greeks who wealth and power and position and intelligence are so important. It is so important to them. So they're kind of being steeped in this. And whether we realize it or not here in the book of James, James has been dealing with a lot of comparisons and contrasts. We've talked about a few of them. um, And I think we lose the comparisons and contrasts of the culture of James because we're so American. I mean, we are really American. Like, you just don't get any more American than Americans, right? Like, you can go to Europe and they're, you know, they're very cultured. But the culture of America is unique to America. The culture of Europe is European, and Africa is African, and Asian is Asian. And so we all tend to read and view and see Scripture through the eyes of our own culture. And we have to remember that James is writing through the culture of his time, but that doesn't mean it doesn't also apply to the culture of our time, right? It just means we have to maybe peel back the first layer, the layer of dust that we've allowed to sit on there and go deeper. We have to do an archeological dig in the scriptures, dust off the old stuff, try to interpret it as best as we can and translate it according to God's word, letting God's word interpret God's word, letting history support what God says, because you know what? God's word is true. So if you're ever in doubt between what the scholars of the world are telling you and what the Bible tells you, who do you believe? The Bible, right? That's our only option here. We have to choose to believe that God, who wrote the very word, who scripture tells us that all scripture is God-breathed, and that it's profitable for teaching and exhortation and, and instruction and all that great stuff that Timothy um, receives in his letter. So we must never falter from that. When the world tells us, oh, but I believe that, you know, there's a lot of error in Scripture. You know, I, I have a lot of, I've had people that say to me, well, you know, I, I don't think you can trust the Bible. I believe in God. And um, I think that Jesus probably was a historical figure, and he was a good guy and everything, but I think that I can just worship God the way that I want and do things the way that I want, because I don't think we can trust the Bible, because I've heard that there's mistakes in the Bible, and I usually reply, really, can you share one of those with me? because I've been doing inductive Bible study for over 25 years, and I have not yet found an error in the Bible. And I, I, I hear people talk about where the Bible contradicts itself, but I've never found a contradiction. Can, can you share one of those with me? You know what, they can't. You know why? Because they're regurgitating what the American culture and the worldly culture has told them, don't trust the Bible. So because people in high authority have said to them, don't trust the Bible, they believe that. And so they argue scripture with you based on what other people have told them without ever having searched the word for themselves. So invite them to show you in the Bible where they can support their position that scripture is wrong and they can't do it. And if they do show something to you, I will guarantee you that they're taking that verse out of context, right? Because the first, the next rule of Bible study, first rule is it's true. <laughs> Second rule is context rules, right? And that he will not contradict himself. Um, so that's important and that's really important here to the audience that James is writing to, because they're getting a lot of contradiction. They're getting a lot of argument. They're getting a lot of input from the worldly philosophers. So some of the things that he has, he's talked about so far in James chapter one was we saw the contrast between those who handle their trials and tribulations that provide endurance, that bring maturity, are able to rejoice in what God has done. And the double-minded man who wants to rely on his own strength, his own power, his own resources, and he fails because he, and here's the other contrast, he's striving for the crown that's made of a garland of grass and flowers, like the old Olympians wore. But we're striving for the crown of life, which is the imperishable, Their crown will perish and it will wither and it will fade and it will be as dust in the wind and burned up in a scorching fire. Our crown of life will endure through any scorching fire, through any famine. It will even endure through a feast. Because what tends to happen to us when we're feasting? We take our eyes off God and we put our eyes on the feast, right? We saw that in the life of Hezekiah, that when he was in desperate need, it was Lord God of the heavens and the earth, save us. And when he was saved and when he was healed from his deathbed experience, it became, look at my feast. Look at the gold and the treasures that I have. So we have to be careful not to fall into that pit. And we can do that. And it might not even be just our worldly possessions, it might be in our pedigree which Paul considered rubbish. And in fact, the word for roughed, uh, rubbish that he uses there is actually dog dung. So his pedigree was nothing compared to what he had in Christ. Don't let our pedigree, don't let our denomination, don't let our position, don't let our job title, don't let any of that stuff interfere with our relationship with Christ and our Call to be his people. Don't let those titles and the pedigree become the feast, the storage house of the gold that we show to the world so that the world can worship us. And what does the world want to do? It wants to steal, it wants to ravage, it wants to destroy. So when we put our pride in ourselves and what we know and what we do and what we accomplish, you can guarantee that you're going to hit that crisis cycle that we talked about yesterday. You'll be cut off at the knees because the world wants to destroy you. And you may be destroyed, but you will not perish because you have the crown of life. Isn't that good? Isn't that good to know? because it's not our life, because we're gonna lay that crown down and that crown is gonna go before the feet of Jesus, before the throne of God, and we're gonna rejoice with him for eternity. Oh, what a day of rejoicing that will be. I am not a singer, (laughs) but I sing a lot to myself. (laughs) So let's move on. And we're gonna look at, we're gonna go back to James then and we're going to read James in James chapter 1, 15 to the end of the chapter. But as you're doing that, let's look at our outline that I handed you. There's two sides. There's two different outlines that people have provided for them uh, for teaching. One comes from the women's Bible study NIV version. And the other one is from a K. Arthur Precept Ministries International Study on the book of James. But I want to look at the women's Bible study one right now. So we can see that again, introduction in 1 1, we see that they've titled the chapter Developing an Enduring Faith. Verses 2 through 18, they've called a Tested Faith, and in 19 through 27, an Active Faith. And then chapter 2, they call the Practicing and practicing an Enduring Faith and they break down the two main divisions in demonstrating the impartiality of faith and then watching faith come alive through works. Now, our goal, Lord willing, the sun shines, the creek don't rise, all that, we hope to get through chapter two, verse 13 today, (laughs) but we'll see. God will do what God will do, and if we feel like we need to stop Um, and pray, or somebody has something they feel like they need to share, know that I'm always open to that, that you can interrupt me at any time. I'm, I'm really trying not to come across as high and mighty and untouchable. Um, I'm just really just a country girl. So that's who I am, and sometimes I need to be reminded, but I'm going to actually, instead of verse 15, I want to back up to verse 12, to put it back into uh, context a little bit. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the power of the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. There's our comparison and contrast, right? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You know what? We are going to stop right there instead of going to the end of the chapter. Let's do this portion first. Do you notice a comparison and a contrast in, in this section? Do you, can you identify it? There's two, it seems like there's two topics. It feels like James is flip-flopping around, and you're like, he's talking about this, and then he's talking about that. But he's really making one point here. He's comparing the evil to the goodness of God. He's saying the temptations of the world come from the world, not from God. And at this point, our mind should be thinking of First John the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the sinful pride of life, which leads to death. And so this is triggering, this should trigger that thought in you that when you're suffering or you're feeling like you're being tempted, which can be a form of suffering, absolutely, because you can suffer and wrestle with, I want to do this. And when we heard Matt last night list off the things that people were abandoning We're unfollowing, unfriending. I would say that those were the temptations, right? That's a list of worldly temptations that he gave us. Those temptations to do those things do not come from God. Those things that lead us to evil are not is not God tempting us to evil. That is the world, that is the enemy that is satanic. Tempting us to that. God, on the other hand, the comparison and contrast that he gives us, what is God giving us? Every good thing. Every perfect gift is from above. Coming directly from the Father of light. Now look for this next comparison. The Father of light versus the shifting shadow. You cannot trust a shifting shadow. God is the Father of light. So we want to make sure that we're clear on this, that if you're being tempted to do something that is contrary to God's word, that is not from God. So when you say, The shifting, I can't remember what I said, Sue. Does anybody remember what I said? So the shifting shadow is not from God and it cannot be trusted. The shifting shadow is the enemy. That is satanic. That is the darkness. What does John tell us about the light? Jesus is the light of the world. Where there is light, you cannot have darkness. So, We need to light our candle so that the darkness goes. When we have the light, can we see clearly what's in front of us? If you were to walk into a dark room, you wouldn't know, would you? We were, uh, this summer we went up to Minnesota to visit the grandsons and we went on a tour of a mine, an iron ore mine, and it was fascinating we went down into the earth half a mile. And once we were underground, they put us in these ore carts. And, and my grandsons were like, this is like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know? <laughs> or the, you know, where they're riding on the, the carts through and they thought that was so cool. But we took this windy, curvy thing around and you would see these big holes in the mountain and more tunnels would go through different ways, but we had to stay on the track that was provided for us because that was what was safe. And that, that trail, that track was lit, and it was very well lit because if for some reason the carts broke down and we had to get off and we had to walk back, we had to be able to see very clearly what was underneath our feet. And then we got off our little ride, and we climbed up this very tight, skinny little spiral staircase, which I was fine going up. <laughs> it was the coming down that I wasn't so sure about. I wasn't as sure-footed on the way down, but the boys thought that was awesome. And they put us in this room, and we couldn't even see the outermost parts of the, of this cavern that we were in. It was just darkness and it was huge. I mean, it was, this ta- it was taller than the tabernacle and it was wider and, and so I wanted to start walking to see how far, I, how far away it was. And our guide's like, get back here. You have to stay here. You have to stay here where I can see you. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> like he scared me. And my mom, pretty soon, my mom's wandering off. Wait, ma'am, get back here. And, you know, every once in a while somebody would wander off because you wanted—you were just drawn to what was out there. And as he talked to us, and he talked to us about the miners and how they kill, were killed in there and how it was so dangerous, and he ha- they had all these lights that were lit for us. And he turned those off, and he said, Now, when I was a miner, he said, All we had were these hats with these lights. And that was the light we worked by. And it was like, ooh, this is pretty dim. How can you tell what you're doing? But your eyes adjusted to it, right? And then he told us about the original miners that went down there who got paid $3 a week. And out of that $3, they had to buy, the, um, they had to buy all their own equipment. So if they broke any equipment, it came out of their paycheck, including the candle that got stuck to their strap that went around their head because they didn't even necessarily have a helmet, but they would wear a cap to keep their hair from catching on fire if the candle got lit too low. So now he has one single candle lit. We're in complete darkness with just that candle. After a few minutes, our eyes adjusted. And then he talked to us about how they would yell fire in the hole, right? because they're going to set off an explosive. He said, now, what do you think happens when 20 guys hear fire in the hole and they have a candle? What happens? You run. What happens to your candle? blows (laughs) Blows out. He blew the candle out. I have never in my life been in such total and complete darkness as that. In fact, just before he did it, he said, somebody needs to hold the hands of the little kids because they needed to know that there was somebody there because it was so dark. And he said, now, imagine your candle has gone out. You know there's fire in the hole. But you also know that throughout this cavern, there are holes that drop 300 feet, and there's no fence around it. Now what do you do? Do you run? You stay where you are and you hit the floor because you have a better chance of surviving if you stand still, wait for the explosion, and relight your candle. Amazing. And then when he relit that single candle, it was incredible to me how much brighter it seemed than when he went from the bright lights on down. It is so important that we understand the difference between living in the light and living in the dark. And when you find yourself in a dark place, find a way to light the candle because you will not be in the darkness. When you hit that dark spot, light your candle. It will save your life. So let's move on. You good with that? Okay. Point number one today light your candle. Go light your candle. (laughs) Debbie's over here with her little candle. Put it under a bushel, no. Satan wants to, it out, no. Okay, verse 19. Now remember, this is still the same letter, it's still the same topic, it's still the same people. Now this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man does not achieve righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Let's back up just a second. Because a thought just hit me. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. In that verse, what is required of you? Say it again. You receive, you put aside. this is not about their initial salvation. They are already saved. They've already heard and accepted Jesus Christ as their savior. But he's saying it's time to clean up your lives. It's time to be all in or all out. So put aside the filthiness Get rid of all that remains of the wickedness. In humility, be humble before the Lord and receive the Word implanted. Because what does the Word do? The Word saves your souls. Only the Word. We repent of our sins, right? But isn't the repentance of our sins the evidence of our salvation and not our salvation? Because we are saved by grace. We are saved by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. What Hebrews says. Yes, Sue. This is the maturity he is talking about. So he says, is this the maturity? This is the maturity. To be able to look at what is happening in your life and evaluate it. Am I going through this because I need to get rid of some filthiness? And the filthiness here is like dirty rags. Get rid of the dirty rags. Do you know what dirty rags are in Scripture? menstrual cycle rags, there's nothing more dirty. Get rid of that filthiness, the waste, the waste of the world. And receive the word implanted, implanted. Now, when you think of the word implanted, what do you think? Surgery. Oh like an implant. Oh that's a good one. I like that. What image, Sherida? Within. within within. Linda said something. It's already there. You've received it. It's in. It's implanted. It becomes a part of you. Right? I have a steel rod, a titanium rod in my leg. It is firmly implanted in there and I am I'm not taking it out. It's like <clears throat> my rod in my leg is a little bit like Paul's thorn in the side. He, he can't get it out. And uh, I, if you ever see me run, my kids laugh hysterically because I look like the hunchback of Notre Dame because I can't put full, when I land on my leg, I can't bear that full weight on there because it causes severe pain. So I kind of run like <laughs> this. <best. laughs> And they're like, okay, Mom, you know, so they laugh at me. But it's always a reminder for me, isn't it? Every time I try to do that, it reminds me of where I fell and when I fell. So sometimes those wounds that we have are kind of the scars and we remember. But if we have implanted God's word, when we come across those times, what does the implanted word do for us? It serves as the reminder, and it takes action. It becomes activated. An implanted word is going to grow, and you will be stretched, and you'll go beyond. So this is a comparison as we go into the next verses, but prove yourselves doers of the word. So we go from having the word implanted because it has to be implanted before we can become a doer. It's only implanted through faith, right? I mean, we can put a ton of knowledge in our heads, but implanted, it is a part of you. It's part of who you are. It's your breathing in and your breathing out. It is powerful. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves." So what's the contrast? We have hearers only contrasted with those who are implanted. So keep those two in mind as we move on. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. This man will be blessed in what he does. So, Jesus gave us a list of blessings because, again, the word blessed is something that the Jewish people love to hear. (laughs) Blessed, we're going to be blessed of God. I will bless you with this, and I will bless you with that. If you do this, I will do this, um, back and forth, and they love it. But the contrast here is in these verses the comparison and the contrast again is the between the man who the word has become a part of who he is it's his in and out his daily life his breathing in and out versus the man who's only the hearer what does it say the man who the hearer is what's his life like he goes to the mirror oh yep there it is there i am yep nothing in my teeth okay i'm good and he turns and he walks away and he goes, oh, wait a minute. I need, I need to look again. Because it's vanity. Vanity is fleeting. So he's the one that's wanting his ears tickled. But it's not becoming real to him. It's not true to him. It's not something that is changing his life. It's not something he's cultivating. It's not something he's trying to build. He's not building a relationship with it. A mirror doesn't interact with you it's cold and distant I've always thought that was funny that you would go to the mirror and not remember what you look like it's like saying I don't remember what I wore this morning did you put him on did you put it on or not put it on You don't think that's funny? Do you forget, Debbie? (laughs) Isn't that funny? Do you know, yes? I have a a visual of what I look like. I have a, hi. I'm letting you speak into the mic. I have a visual of what I look like, but when I look in the mirror, it's usually not what I thought. (laughs) (laughs) that, that can be very true. Sometimes I get up in the morning, (laughs) sometimes I get up in the morning and I'm quite shocked, (laughs) right? And then sometimes I look in the mirror and I go, I forgot I let my hair go gray. I think, but I think that's just senility or something, early, early setting and being crazy. But you're right, but we do forget. We even, even as Christians, right, we can forget we, we need to be reminded. That's why, that's why this next part for James is so important as we get into chapter 2. But remember that this first chapter is talking about the faith that they have. He's not trying to convince them to follow Jesus. Jesus. They are following Jesus. They're believers. But they need to be reminded of what that looks like because they're living in a Greek culture. So he's saying, you keep forgetting that you are in Christ Jesus. Why do you keep thinking that you're still to live as the Gentiles live? You are called to be a different people. God's word implanted causes us to be quite peculiar. We look different, we act different, we talk differently. You know, modesty means something. Um, Saying please and thank you, you know, those kind of things are important, right? Those are manners. So, manners are one thing, morals are another thing. Right? Because the Gentiles had manners but the Gentiles didn't have morals. Yes, Yes, verse 18, Debbie is saying about humbly accepting the word. Is it 21? Okay, no, we were, she was trying to find it. The inhumility or humbleness received the word. So what do you think that looks like? She posed the question. What do you think that looks like? Anyone? transplant yeah so Linda is saying that we're really safe from our sin and that that humbleness is I can't do it myself I have to rely on the master healer to open me up and to take out my heart of stone that Jeremiah talks about and put in the heart of flesh, I get a heart transplant. So he's implanting that. He says, I'm gonna write my word on your heart. So that's that implanting. In my mind, if, if you receive the word in pride, it just goes to your oh. head. Did you guys hear that? She said, when we receive the word in pridefulness, it goes to our head. When we receive the word in humbleness, it goes to our heart. And I think that's where the pedigree comes in, that when we boast in what we know and we boast in our position, you know, like, you know, I have a friend who had quoted the whole book of James from memory, I'm gonna tease Sue, cause Sue did that along with Tammy Costers. They would memorized the entire book of James. And I know that they implanted that in their heart as they did it. That they didn't just set it to be a task to be accomplished because as they worked on that, memorization, they studied each verse as they went along to figure out what it was so that it would be something real to them and not just something that they recited. Like most of us can recite the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Well, I don't know if I can because it's been a long time since I've done it, right? Like when I was in first grade, we said it every single day, and I knew it. How often do I say it now? I stumble across the words because it, it hasn't, I've not allowed it to remain in me. Yeah, Jennifer is saying that when, when she was in third grade, her third grade Sunday school teacher, they memorized all the books of the Bible and they, re, they used that regularly and it became a part of them. So we can't just hear it one time even and have it in. Sometimes, sometimes that happens, right? We get it and it's there and it's, and it's good but other times we have to practice it over and over and over. And thank you, Jennifer, for, th- for that because that takes us to the last two verses of this first chapter. Because if someone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Now, it seems like he's... Just quickly changing the subject here in the next verse, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Don't those seem like two different thoughts? They really do, don't they? But yet, what is he talking about? He's talking about two different kinds of religion. He's talking about a religious person who's just yakety yak? don't talk back, and as a result is deceiving his own heart because he's talking a good talk. He's talking a good talk in public. But his religion is worthless because in the dark, when the lights go out, he doesn't light a candle. But the man who's living in true religion and i wish they picked a different word here james why because then in the next verse pure and undefiled religion i wish that he would put in what he really meant was true faith in jesus christ in the sight of our father god is to visit the orphans and widows in their distress right that's the first part So let's substitute widows and orphans with those who need Jesus, those who need food, those who need water, those who need help and assistance and housing and those things. Let's take care of those who are too poor in both spirit and in economy to take care of themselves. I know you have little, but with God, you have everything. And so let's give the little that we have. Let's share what we have. Um, So it's helping those that are in distress. Looking within the church first, because specifically, he's speaking to the church. And remember um, Stephen, who was martyred in the book of Acts. Stephen's role in the church, he was set up as one of the seven elders over the church, and his job was to oversee the care of the widows and the orphans. Because as they were sharing and, and things were being, you know, divided and shared, the widows and the orphans were being over, overlooked. Their needs weren't being met. Or some were and some weren't, and there was kind of this this thing going on and so they said all right we it's you know what we've gotten too big for our britches we need to get organized we're going to appoint seven elders they're going to take care of this Stephen was the overseer of that and I think this is a gentle reminder to them of the sacrifice that Stephen made in caring for the widows and the orphans because they were dispersed at the time of Stephen's death. This would have hit them. Remember Stephen? He died doing what God called him to do. Now that he's gone, you have to be Stephen and pick up the slack. You have to do what you're able to do where you are with what you have and trust God in that. And then he kicks us in the pants. (sighs) Not just to help people in their distress, but hey, by the way, keep yourself unstained by the world. Because he talked about filthy rags just a little while ago, right? Because what would be the temptation of these Jewish people at this time who really don't have anything to share. The temptation might be greed, hoarding, cheating, stealing, lying, bribing, um, cozying up to the rich guy so that you can get more for your family, lacking trust. So be unstained by the world. So that phrase, keep yourself unstained by the world, is directly connected to James chapter 2. So let's read that. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and to the poor man, "Um, you can stand over there down on the floor. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. You've not been, you've not remained unstained by the world. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? The name of Jesus. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point he's become guilty of all for he said do not commit adultery also he said do not commit murder now if you do not commit adultery and but do commit murder you've become a transgressor of the law so speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now I want to back up a little bit to the beginning of of chapter two. This is another Greek teaching for you. And I want to find it because I want to read it. Okay. Regarding partiality, here is where we see the influence of the Greek philosophers as James writes. The Greeks were focused on manners rather than morals. They stressed keeping one's place in the world, adhering to established social structures, obeying rules and displaying honor and gratitude to one's superiors. James concentrated on doing good deeds, irrespective of the honor or shame they would bring in the world's eyes. The Greeks are self-centered. They promote themselves and their ideas above others. They look out for number one they're looking out for themselves james is combating this among the brethren by drawing their attention back to the community back to the body of christ as a whole even though he does not reference the body specifically he is calling them to prove their faith by giving glory to god through jesus with the work they do for one another as evidence of their conversion. Their works are not to be a way or a means to be converted, for it is by faith alone we are saved. It's so interesting that, that if you didn't realize where they were living and you just read the book of James, you'd go, okay, you know, I can't treat the really rich people in my church better, and I can't just, we can't just put them on the board because, you know, they're influential, which is a real temptation, right? On any nonprofit, it's a temptation to say, we need to find the most influential people in the community, the people that have the money, the people that can support us, the people that know lots of people. And you know, there's, that's, that is valid to an extent because you do need people that know lots of people and you need people that have resources that you're not gonna tap, tap out your poor person, but you don't reject poor person in favor of the wealthy person if the poor person has the spiritual gifts that you need to serve in a position. You need to put that person in there. So don't show favoritism to the more spiritually qualified person over a spiritually disqualified person just because of money. And so they've got these Greeks that are attending their, their meetings that they at their gathering place and they're being influenced by that. And They're being, you know, so they're hearing, they're hearing and sharing their testimonies and the Greeks are kind of insisting that the protocol of society be followed that because they come in in their fine white linen and their purple sashes and their really nice Birkenstock sandals and you're wearing 99 cent flip-flops from the gas station. And you're wearing the clothes you got at Goodwill, which according to my dad's the best place and why would you ever pay full price for anything? (laughs) But just because they come in with a big wallet doesn't mean that they're the right person for the job. And it doesn't mean that you treat them any different or more special than anybody else. And I think this is a sermon we've all heard a thousand times But now that we understand it from the Greek perspective, the Gentile perspective, does it make more sense? Because they were insisting that societal protocols be followed, that they would enter the building first and the poor people couldn't come in until the end. That they got the choice meats and the poor people got the scraps, that because they, held, they were business owners and they were educated that they were the ones allowed to speak, but not the poor, uneducated ones. And yet, who did God use when Jesus chose his 12? What was that, Kevin? Poor the poor and the uneducated. Bunch of fishermen. Come and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, Jesus said. And they were like, woohoo, a rabbi wants us. We've been rejected by all other rabbis, but this rabbi wants us. What a great call to be rejected by the world, but chosen by God. I would rather be chosen by God than chosen by the world. It's an amazing thing. The next comparison and contrast we have is from, eight until verse, from verse 8 to verse 13. We see here the royal law compared to the perfect law or the law of liberty, which, by the way, are both being quoted equally because it's saying, doesn't it say in the royal law that you shall love your neighbor as yourself? Well, where's this come from? Where do we hear that? Leviticus and Jesus, right? But is, is, it, is it said in Leviticus and by Jesus with the same attitude? No. The following the royal law meant you have to follow it every jot and tittle. That you had to cross every T and dot every I or you failed in your faith and you were lost and you had to go provide a sacrifice because you had failed in the law. Jesus is saying tells us in the Beatitude, in the sermon on the mount if we were to go to it in matthew 17 through 20 he's telling us just love god and love your neighbor as yourself just do the best you can do it with your heart and mean it you're never going to be perfect because there's this gap there's this gap we've got the law which is the steepest hill you could ever not climb. You can never reach the top. And there's this chasm called death. And on the other side is God. So the law wants you to climb this impossible wall and cross the chasm of death to get to God. But Jesus says, I'm going to build that bridge for you. And I'm going to call it the perfect law, the law of liberty. Guess what? Now you're free. Because I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to take you from where you are. You don't have to do anything. You don't even have to climb the wall. Because we can't save ourselves. If you just believe in me and receive the word implanted, the heart. Word of truth will come in you, and your desire to follow the law will be in there. But don't worry about how perfect you are. Just worry about working toward maturity and following what I'm asking you to do. And I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to scoop you up where you are without any effort on your own, and I'm going to carry you, and I'm going to lay you right in my Father's arms all you have to do is believe believe on me believe on the word of truth believe that i am who i say i am believe that when i tell you in john chapter 1 verse 1 that in the beginning was the word word, and the word was and the word was with god and he became further down in the chapter and he became flesh And he dwelt among us. But the world did not receive him. But some received him. And they believed. And they received eternal life. And that's where we're at today. We got through verse 13. God did it.